Welcome to Grace Point Church Podcast. We proclaim Christ crucified and uphold him as the only hope for the fallen world. Hi there and welcome back to our GG reading. This is Christ's Call to Discipleship by James Montgomery Boyce. Today we are looking at chapter 10, that is New Relationships. This is page 124 to 134, New Relationships. James begins by quoting from Luke 14, 26 to 27, and I quote, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 26 to 27. Now we live in a disintegrating world. But in the midst of disintegration, no principle so unites people as family feeling. Dictators know this. They do everything possible to set husbands against wives, wives against husbands, and especially children against parents, or to increase loyalty toward the government. Quite frequently, when I am conducting weddings, I point out that the family is the most basic of all human institutions. The family was the first school from the education that took place in the home or other institutions of education, that is grade school, academies, colleges and vocational institutions developed. The family was the first hospital. Healing and nursing originally took place within the home. The family was the first government from a father's leadership in his home came patriarchal, monarchical, and eventually democratical forms of human rule. If the family stands, society stands. If the family falls, these other forms of social achievement and order will fall with it. Christian readers write about this at great length. I think of books like Is There a Family in the House by Kenneth Chaffin, Christians in Families, by Roy W. Fairchild and Heaven Help the Home by Howard G. Hendricks. These writers are worried about the family and want to strengthen it. Hendricks says the Christian home must blossom in a field of weeds. What right-thinking Christian would fail to echo that wish? What, uh, what right-thinking non-Christian would fail to echo it? It is therefore something of a shock to study Christ's words about discipleship and find him saying what one what on the surface appears to be the very opposite. He says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Luke fourteen twenty six. In this verse Jesus seems to be tearing the home apart rather than strengthening it. Here, we begin with a subtitle, A Hard Saying of Jesus. A Hard Saying of Jesus. This clearly is one of the hard sayings of Jesus, and it is hard in more ways than one. England's F.F. Bruce has written a book entitled The Hard Sayings of Jesus, in which uh, this verse is discussed, and he concludes that it is hard for two reasons. Number one, it is hard to accept. And number two, it is hard to reconcile 
with Jesus' other teachings. The attitude which it seems to recommend goes against the grain of nature and it also goes against the law of love to one another, one's neighbor, which Jesus emphasized and radicalized. If the meaning of neighbor must be extended so as to include one's enemy, it must not be restricted so as to exclude one's nearest and dearest. One way of handling this problem is to regard these words merely as an example of Semitic hyperbole. Hyperbole is extravagant exaggeration for the purpose of emphasizing a point. If this is the case, Jesus is saying what in Matthew 10, 37 to 38, he says in calmer tones, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He means only that the interests of God's kingdom must be paramount among his followers. But there are a number of reasons for thinking that this may be too facile a handling of the text. For one thing, it is probably not a proper interpretation of the word worthy in Matthew 10. We take that word lightly. No one is worthy of Christ. We think and dismiss it. That is probably not what Jesus meant. When he said, anyone who fails to do so and so is not worthy of me, he probably meant precisely what he says in Luke 14, 26, namely, he cannot be my disciple, which means he cannot be saved. Second, the context makes Matthew's statement stronger than it first appears. It is true that in verse 37, Jesus speaks merely of loving one's father, mother, son, or daughter more than himself. But in the verses immediately before this, he says two very important things. First, he speaks of our failing to acknowledge him before men, saying, Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men... I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Verse 32 to 33. That is speaking of salvation or loss of it. Secondly, he speaks of bringing divisions to this world. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Verse 34 to 36. It is after this that Jesus speaks of loving a father or mother, son or daughter more than himself. In this context, the words in Matthew are not essentially different from the words in Luke. Both speak of a situation in which a person must choose between Christ and other persons, even members of one's own family. They declare that one cannot be Christ's follower without rejecting anyone who is opposed to him or who would exercise a higher position of affection and authority in the disciple's life. Luke 14.25-33 contains three sentences, each ending with the words, cannot be my disciple. The verse says that unless we hate members of our families, yes, even our own lives, we cannot be Christ's disciples. 
The second says that unless we take up the cross and follow Christ, we cannot be his disciples. The third says that if we do not give up everything we have, we cannot be Christ's disciples. These are three ways of saying that we must count the cost in all areas and at all times if we would be Christians. Another subtitle here, Beyond Accounting. Beyond Accounting. In the last chapter, I began with Jesus' words about counting the cost in Luke 14, 28-33. Deliberately passing over verses 26-27. to It was because counting the cost was the more basic idea. Here, by going back, we go beyond mere cost, uh, mere cost accounting. We ask whether we are willing to pay the most painful costs for the price of salvation. The statement butters us with four profoundly shocking truths. The first one is radical demands of Christ's kingdom. The radical demands of Christ's kingdom. Over the years that I have been in Christian work, I've been asked to serve on boards of Christian organizations, and to the extent uh, that I have had time, I've been glad to do so. I served on the board of trustees for the Stony Brook School for eight years and the board of an international ministry in Philadelphia for four years. I'm currently on the board of directors on the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy, the Committee on Biblical Exposition and Bible Study Fellowship. I've taken on these responsibilities willingly and enthusiastically. I've done everything I'm able to do for these organizations. But I've not left father or mother or wife or children in order to assume these responsibilities. In fact, I've not surrendered any other legitimate responsibilities to serve those boards. Christ's statements about the demands of his kingdom are not like that. We think of most work as something that can be taken on and then later dropped, if it pleases us to drop it, with no greater issues involved. But when Jesus presented the demands of his kingdom, he always demanded the most radical commitment from his followers. It was not something that could be taken up and then dropped. It was not a part-time occupation. Another way of saying this is that the coming of Christ's kingdom and the corresponding demands of discipleship were something utterly new in this world. Before this, there had been people who had attempted to make such radical demands on other persons, but their demands were illegitimate. They presented mere human institutions, and the demands of mere human institutions were relative. As the Bible itself teaches, as we owe the state obedience and loyalty, we must pay taxes to whom uh, taxes are due and give respect to whom respect is due. But the state is not absolute. There are times when we must disobey it or prove force to God. The family also has claims on our loyalty, but it is not absolute. The claims of service uh, organizations, political parties, businesses are all relative. Not so with Christ's kingdom. The coming of Christ and his kingdom was something new in the history of this world, and its demands are beyond anything any other organization or movement can justify. Jesus made this point by contrasting his demands with the demands even of so high an honorable institution as the family. The, un- the second one is the unique authority of Jesus Christ. 
the unique authority of Jesus Christ. Jesus' statement that unless a person hates father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple, also teaches the unique authority of Jesus. For who would dare to say this unless he possessed a unique authority? Who but God can make such demands? This was the great issue confronting those who followed Jesus in the days of his ministry. When he began to teach, they marveled because he taught as one who had authority and not as the scribes, as we see in Matthew 7, 29. When he quieted the storm on the Sea of Galilee, those who were with him, those who were with him were amazed, asking, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. You see in Matthew 8:27. When he forgave the sins of the paralytic, the teachers of the law asked themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Luke 5, 21. It became perfectly evident to these and others that Jesus was speaking with more than mere human power and authority. Could he be God? That was the great issue. As we know, some rejected that conclusion and eventually crucified him as a blasphemer and deceiver. But those who recognized his authority, substantiated by his miracles, they went on to the inevitable conclusion and worshipped him. If Jesus is God, then the demands of his kingdom are more radical than we have hitherto imagined. When we hear Jesus saying that we must hate our mothers and, bra- and fathers, uh, wives and children in order to be his disciples, that seems shockingly extreme. But if he is God, it is not extreme at all. If he is God, nothing he could possibly demand could be outrageous. If he is God, we owe him total obedience and total self-surrender. Yes, even our own lives are not too much to give in his service. On the other hand, the fact that Jesus is God makes the self-surrender all right. For God is not an arbitrary deity who has no concern for us, who we might wrongly imagine has concern only for his own self aggrandizement. God made us. He has given us life and families and homes and a reasonable portion of this world's goods. These things are good because they are made by God and are God's gifts. It follows that if God requires us to give up one or more of these things in a specific situation, as a pioneer missionary might have to do in order to take the gospel to remote indigenous areas of the world. It is because the demand, hard as it may appear, is nevertheless good in that particular situation. If God is commanding, what is commanded is good for others and for ourselves as well. The third thing is that uh, is the inescapable priorities of true discipleship. The inescapable priorities of true discipleship. As soon as we talk of good in every situation uh, or of personal sacrifice in a specific situation, we tend to relax, assuming that we are therefore off the hook under the disturbing radical nature of true Christian discipleship does not affect us. This is a false conclusion. It is true that Jesus may never ask us 
to break with our families for his sake all, as in the case of the rich young man, sell all we have and give it to the poor and come and follow him. In the great majority of cases, this is not required. But we must be willing to obey in this or any other areas if Jesus asks it. We must do it if he does. This is to say that we must get our priorities straight. Following Jesus must be the most important thing in our lives, even more than our lives. Nothing must be done that subtracts from that commitment. Everything must be done to strengthen it. George Eldon Ludd comments this way, and I quote, The most radical form of renunciation includes a man's very life. Unless he hates his own life, he cannot be a disciple, Luke 14.26. Obviously, this does not mean that every disciple must die. He must, however, be ready to do so. He no longer lives for himself, but the kingdom of God. What happens to him is unimportant, for the fate of the kingdom is all important. This is the meaning of the words, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Matthew 16:24. This does not mean self-denial, that is, denying oneself of life's enjoyment and pleasures. Self-denial can have a selfish end. By practicing self-denial, men have sought selfish advantage. Denial of self is the opposite. It means the renunciation of one's own will, that the kingdom of God may become that all-important concern of life. Taking up one's cross does not mean assuming burdens. The cross is not a burden, but an instrument of death. The taking of the cross means the death of self, of personal ambition and self-centered purpose. In the place of selfish attainment, however altruistic and noble, one is to desire alone the rule of God. End of quote. Now some will think of this as a burden, but those who follow Jesus find it a liberating force. There is nothing so inhibiting as indecision. The person who knows what he is committed to can move forward decisively. The fourth one is the dangers of this world. The dangers of this world. The fourth shocking truth in Christ's statement about hating father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, is the insidious dangers of this world, even in the area of normal human relations and affections. We must say to ourselves, if I can be kept from Christ by the normal love that you should have for parents, spouse, children, or siblings, as Christ obviously teaches I can be, then how dangerous must be the snares of this world. When we speak of the world and its dangers, we, and, and its dangers we are of course not speaking of the world globe, that is the earth. We are not even speaking of the people who inhabit the earth necessarily. In the Bible, the term world characteristically denotes what we would call the world system. It is the way the world operates. It concerns the world values and priorities. It is the preoccupation of the world with self and its pleasures rather than with pleasing God. This is what must go because this more than anything else 
is an enemy of true religion. Bishop J.C. Ryle asks, and I quote, Is it not true that nothing damages the cause of religion so much as the world? It is not open sin or open unbelief which robs Christ of his professing servants so much as the love of the world, the fear of the world, the cares of the world, the business of the world, the money of the world, the pressures of the world, and the desire to keep in with the world. This is the great rock on which thousands of young people are continually making shipwreck. They do not object to any article of the Christian faith. They do not deliberately choose evil and openly rebel against God. They hope somehow to get to heaven at last, and they think it proper to have some religion. But they cannot give up their idol. They must have the world. And so, after running well and bidding fair for heaven for boys and girls, they turn aside when they become men and women and go, be, go down the broad way which leads to destruction. They begin with Abraham and Moses and end up with Demas and Lot's wife. End of quote. The world is sophisticated, persistent, and insidious in its temptations. How can we resist these temptations if they come if, if they can come to us even through the proper and desirable affection and loyalty we feel for members of our own families. The chief way is to be bold in confessing Jesus Christ. During World War I, one of my predecessors at 10th Presbyterian Church, Donald Gray Barnhouse, led the son of a prominent American family to the Lord. He was in the service. But he showed the reality of his conversion by immediately professing Christ before the soldiers of his military company. The war ended. The day came when he was to return to his pre-war life in the wealthy suburbs of a large American city. He talked to Barnhouse about life with his family and expressed fear that he might soon slip back into his old habits. He was afraid that love for parents, brothers, sisters, and friends might turn him from following after Jesus Christ. Banhouse told him that if he was careful to make public confession of his faith in Christ, he would not have to worry. He would, have, he would not have to give improper friends up. They would give him up. As a result of this conversation, the young man agreed to tell first, the first ten people of his old set whom he encountered that he had become a Christian. The soldier went home. Almost immediately, in fact, while he was still on the platform of the suburban station at the end of his return trip, he met a girl whom he had known socially. She was delighted to see him and asked how he was doing. He told her, The greatest thing that could possibly happen to me has happened. You are engaged to, me, to be married? She, explained. she exclaimed. No, he told her, it is even better than that. I have taken the Lord Jesus Christ as my savior. The girl's expression froze. She mumbled a few polite words and went on her way. A short time later, the new Christian met a young man whom he had known before going into the service. It's good to see you back, he declared. We'll have some great parties now that you have returned. I've just become a Christian the soldier said. He was thinking, that's true. Again, it was a case of a frozen smile and a quick change of conversation. 
After this, the same circumstances were repeated with a young couple and with two more old friends. But this time, Muad had got around, and soon some of his friends stopped seeing him. He had become peculiar, religious, and who knows, they may even have called him crazy. What had he done? Nothing but confess Christ. The same confession that had aligned him with Christ had separated him from those who did not want Jesus Christ as Savior, and who in fact did not even want to hear about him. So it will be for you. Nothing will so keep the world at bay as a frank confession of Christ. It is the way to be his disciple. Another a subheading here as we conclude. Old family, new family. Old family, new family. I believe I hear what some may be thinking. It is all well and good to be talking about breaking with old social acquaintances or other distant friends. But that is quite a different thing from breaking with one's parents or worse yet, one's husband or wife. These relationships that cannot simply be done away with and any strain along those lines is painful. That is true. I offer this consolation. First, it is often the case, indeed, it is generally the case that God works in families and thus uses one who has become a Christian to draw his relations after him. It is remarkable how this happens. At first, there may be great misunderstanding, even hostility. Parents especially tend to regard a child's new faith as a rejection of them and their values. But a change after a change often occurs. Hostility is replaced by curiosity and then by respect for the new way of life. Conversations follow, and before long, the parent, brother, sister, or others turn to Jesus. I've been a pastor for many years, and I have noticed something interesting. A generation ago, the church was filled with parents who were grieving over an errant son or daughter. The parents were believers, but the children had rejected Christianity and were living the world's life. Today, it is often the reverse. The children, often, often college students or young career people, have found Christ, and they are now concerned for their parents. Moreover, I have noticed that through the witness of the children, many of these parents come to Jesus. If you are having trouble with your family as a result of your attempts to follow Jesus, do not despair. Count it a temporary thing. You must follow Jesus regardless of what your family may say or do. But reason that the very fact that God has called you is encouragement to think that he may also call them. As Charles Spurgeon once said, you may be the spiritual decoy to bring them into the gospel net. Second, do not forget the wonderful new family God has given you through the work of Christ. You have much in common with the members of your natural family, similar personalities, shared experiences. But you have much, much more in common with your new family, the family of believers. It is what Jesus spoke of in Mark 10, 29-30, as text still to be studied. He declared, I tell you the truth, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or feeds for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come, 
eternal life. What a great family this is. It is one family because the members all have one father. They have one mother, the true invisible church. They have one elder brother, Jesus Christ. This is a happy family because the members have turned from sin and are striving to obey Jesus. Pride is abhorred by this family. All rest their hope of salvation on what Jesus Christ has done and they have no confidence in themselves. They read the same Bible. They, get, they go to the same throne of grace in prayer. They strive for the same gifts of grace. There is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. See Galatians 5, 22-23. They feel themselves to be at one with all other Christians. They have the same future expectations. That is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the establishing of his kingdom. They look to be united around his throne at the final resurrection. Does the fellowship of Christ uh, does the fellowship of Christ's cross costs? Indeed it does, but it has great compensations, blessing now and life in the world to come. The fellowship of Christ's cross has a cost. Indeed it does, but it has a greater compensations, blessing now and life in the world to come end of that chapter thank you thank you for listening to today's episode of Gracepoint Church podcast for more information and for past episodes please check our website gracepointchurch